Well, good morning. Glad you're here, I hope. Well, good. I'm still learning. There's, a, there's this little fine line between when the singing stops and then I take my mask off and make sure the mic is still on. I don't want to take the mask off too early because I can't sing anymore. And then I've got to turn the mic on. I'm a basket case by the time I get up here. There's just so many decisions that need to be made. So uh, anyway, th- these guys are very patient with me on the worship team. So thank you guys for letting me be back. We're grateful for God's goodness in our lives and for the opportunity to be together as we look to his word and study the scriptures to see his way forward for us. We're going to be looking over the next several weeks, probably about three months, at the book of Philippians. Now, one of the things I, I'm not very interested in doing is just kind of a sporadic passage here and a sporadic passage there, a text here, a text there, a topic here, a topic there. I kind of want to just work through a book of the Bible. I'd like to preach through the scriptures that way. I know Pastor Joe did that. And so that's a part of what I love doing. And so for this season in the life of Lawndale, uh, my prayer is that this study of Philippians will be a helpful one and that we will rejoice together. I, I take confidence and encouragement as a pastor when people say, well, you know, After you said, in conclusion, you went probably another third of the sermon. Yeah, that's that's a trouble. But here, in Philippians, start of chapter 3, he says, finally, brothers. He's got two more chapters. I love Paul. He's just the kind of preacher that we want to see him be. But today, what we're going to do is give you a little background. How did the gospel get to Philippi? Because it's one of the most uh, amazing, wonderful churches in the New Testament. And, and the letter uh, is filled with such incredible riches. How did it get that way? What were its beginnings? So today we're going to look at Acts chapter 16. We're going to walk through this passage together and just understand some of what happens when we follow God in the direction he has given us. It doesn't always work out the way we think it would. Sometimes things are radically different from what our expectations are set out there to be. And that's the case with this situation. Now, you know, I don't know Paul personally. I don't know Silas personally and Luke and Timothy who were part of this missionary journey as they left Derby and Lystra and started heading west with the gospel. I don't know them, but I know me and I know how frustrating it is when you feel like finally I've settled in. This is the will of God. And then you start pursuing it, and then it feels like the wheels fall off. You ever had that happen? Yeah, I'm doing what God called me to do. Why is this so stinking hard? Well, we want to look at that this morning. Because in the analysis of the proclamation of the gospel and the going forth to the nations, we see that's actually probably more our expectation of what happens than not. Probably happens more times than it doesn't. And so we, we need to think through, what is our response? Because Lawndale is getting ready to go through a, a transition. You're moving from one season to a next. You're getting ready to find out what God has in store during this next season. Now that Joe and PJ have moved on and God's called them to the next place, they're walking like you are. They have a direction. They have an idea of where they're going to go. But I guarantee you it won't look like they think it's going to look. I retired from Providence five years ago this month, and it hadn't looked at all like I thought it was going to look. Some of you know what, what I mean. You've, you've experienced that. You, you went one direction, and all of a sudden, Lord, I thought I had clarity on that. And you may well have had clarity on it. But God does things that we don't expect. That's what we want to look at this morning. So I'm inviting you to Acts chapter 16. 
I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. A little background before we get to the actual text. He has picked up a new disciple to travel with him, Timothy, when he was in uh, Derby and Lystra. And they're moving west across what is modern-day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor. And it says as they're moving across, they had every intention of going toward Asia. Asia being the western part of Asia Minor, that southwestern portion of it. And in that is a place called Ephesus, but the Lord would not allow them to go there. It says they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit from going to Asia. They're going west. That's where they would logically think in our strategic plan to get the gospel to the nations. Ephesus is going to be key. It's one of the westernmost boundaries of Asia. And and there is a great place where, where trade is happening. There's a lot of people in and out of there. It's a lot of conversations. It's a Roman city. That's going to be a great launching pad for the gospel. It says we were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go there. Instead of chafing at that and thinking, well, Lord, we designed the plan. What's wrong with you? We should be able to do what you are calling us. That seems smart. So, well, well, I guess we'll go north. And so they go up toward Mysia. And from Mysia, they were thinking, we'll go on into Bithynia. Bithynia is the region where uh, now the capital is uh, for Istanbul. That's where that is. We'll go up that direction. And it says the spirit of Jesus stopped us. We couldn't go that way. So now picture what's going on. They're, They're coming west. And they're, they're moving from the east, the cities where they were helping the churches get planted and helping them get reestablished on the second visit with them. And they're heading, going, going southwest? No, can't go that way. Okay, then we're going to go up to Bithynia? No, we're, we're not going that way. Well, Lord, that means we either go back where we came from, which is not the plan, or we go forward. And there was a funnel taking them to the city of Troas. And it says they, they went on to Troas, convinced that this is where God wants us to be. Great city, super opportunities on the coast. The gospel can go forth there to the nations. Great strategic plan, God. Way to go. That's not what God was planning. So verse 8, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now, verse 9. And if you'll follow along here, I'm actually going to start reading it now. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A certain man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, just a little geography, Macedonia was across the sea and they had to go on a little ship ride from Troas all the way across the sea over to Macedonia. So that's the, the, the northeast part of where Greece is now. So that's where we're heading. So the Macedonian vision, come help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I love that. Immediately, we got this, we're going. This is what we're supposed to do. Now, this is Paul and Silas, Luke and Timothy. I'm thinking, what's wrong with Troas? I mean, is everybody saved here? I mean, couldn't we do the work here? No, Lord's saying... Through this calling, come on to Macedonia, immediately they took off. Verse 11, therefore putting out to sea from from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis, and from there on to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. That's where we pick up our passage this morning. That's how the gospel got to Philippi. Would you expect... With that kind of clarity, with that kind of direction from God, that their work in Philippi was going to be off the charts? 
When you get that kind of clarity of calling, it's like, yeah, this is going to be amazing. No problems, easy sailing, going to be gospel-centered phenomenon like the world has never seen. Well, let's pray together because God wants to show us some things about our lives that we need to understand. It seldom ever works like that. So let's understand and figure out what God has for us here. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we come as a mixed bag. We've got folks around this room who have followed you for more years than others have even been alive. We've got folks here who have been in ministry positions and have led the way in seeing many people come to Christ, grow to maturity in Christ, worship leaders, all kinds of different resources that have been given to this church through the people who are gathered here. They responded to Macedonian-style callings. Clarity came as they were seeking to know what you would have them do, and they listened, and they went forward as you directed them. Father, in my own life, I've experienced those kind of callings that I knew were from you. Father, our prayer this morning is that we would understand as we enter into the next season here at this church that you would help us be prepared to not be prepared for all that's going to happen. You've got great and wonderful things ahead of us. And there are bumps along the way that we need to not see as obstacles but as launch pads for what you have in store next. And so, Father, we ask you to help us understand the scriptures that we might grow in respect to this glorious salvation that you've given us for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, God calls all of us, right? He doesn't just call pastors. Called Joe and PJ here 20 plus years ago. They came. God blessed them. It was a great ministry. Exciting things happened. Numbers and numbers and numbers of people came to Christ. You've seen your children come up and uh, grow up in maturity and faith. You've seen some of you watch them marry here and, and project out from here. You've seen great things happen. And God called him. And now you're praying for a search committee to recognize the person who has the call of God on his life that's a Macedonian type of clarity. Lord, we don't want somebody who comes here because of the salary, because it's a big city, because it's an established church. We don't want somebody who comes here because it's going to be some kind of prestige. We don't want that kind of person. We want somebody who has the call of God upon his life, right? Or somebody who's just real good and entertaining. No, somebody who's God called. But the reality is you're called too. And so as we think through what does our calling look like, we, we have to recognize that what we bring to calling and our expectations that we import into God's calling are not necessarily the ones we see supported scripturally. So let me just back up the train a little bit and, and walk you through what happened in the life of Kathy and David Horner as we ended up in Raleigh, North Carolina. Grew up in Graham, Burlington area, just, just east of here. Went to Wake Forest University, did a little undergraduate study there, and then went to Massachusetts for seminary. I knew when the ticket was punched when I was leaving to come back out of the cold, barren lands of northern Massachusetts. But it was a great experience. Went to seminary there. And when I'm coming to the last part of my seminary career, I don't really have any geographical expectations as to where I could end up. I don't have any idea that, well, Lord, I want to come and, and pastor this kind of church. or that. I didn't have any of that. All I knew was that at the time I'm graduating from school, I'd been in youth ministry for about six years. And I'm feeling like, Lord, I'm ready for big people now. Okay, and I'm sure the Lord was delighted that I explained that to him because you know how the Lord needs to be 
one who has things explained to him. No. And so I, I started sending my resume out and, and I'd send them to different people that I had relationships with around the country and mainly in North Carolina, which is where my background was. And, and I sent it to some pastor friends of mine in North Carolina and to a, a guy that I'd grown up with in, in my church. And so we, we started praying, God, show us where to go. And I talked to some pastors about, you know, my desire to get in there and be a pastor and a preacher of the word. And, you know, I don't care if it's 10 or, or 10,000. I just want to preach the word. I want to be faithful to the truth. Yes, Lord. First response back, hey, listen, there is a youth ministry position in Raleigh. I think you would be great for that. No, thank you. God bless you for thinking of me, but, but that's not what God's called me to do. I'm called to be a senior pastor and, and senior nothing. I just wanted to be the pastor who preached on Sunday morning. Uh, I was 25. There's not much senior about that. And so here I go thinking through this whole process. Second response comes back from another pastor here in, in North Carolina. Hey, Horner, listen, there's a church in Raleigh that's looking for not, not a pastor, 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 pastor. I mean, the youth pastor is a pastor, but I didn't think so. And so, I, yeah, thank you. I've heard about that one already. I appreciate that. I sent them the resume of a friend of mine who wanted to do student ministries. Now, remind you, I've already been doing youth ministry for six years. I love youth ministry. All my years at Providence as pastor there, I required all of our pastors to go to youth camp. I mean, I love students. This is a great. So it wasn't dismissing that as invalid. That was a great minute. But I felt I was ready for big people. You know, third person responds, you know, you know what that, you know where this is going, don't you? Third, fourth, and at the fourth, I'm saying, well, Lord, okay, even if I, if I hear anything further, I'll consider that you need five times. I mean, I'm reading Gideon thinking, seriously, you had that, you had twice you got to get the fleet. And I go five times into this thing. And so I go to the interview with the search committee in Raleigh at this church about their student ministry position. Easiest interview in history. I didn't want the job. You know, I could pick my nose and, and burp and do anything I wanted to. I, I didn't want the job. I didn't want to impress them at all. And so they'd ask me questions and I just boom, boom. This is what I boom, boom. Miracle of grace. They called me to be their youth pastor. I'm going like... Lord, you got a great sense of humor, but this is, this is not what I thought was going to happen here. But I knew this is as clear as Macedonia to me. I've got to be there. And so I come to Raleigh to do youth ministry and I'm thinking, what are my expectations? What could I have expected when I agreed to follow God's will wherever he led? And that's what I want us to talk about for a minute. What could have been the expectations there? Well, the first one could have been that, that I need somebody to pat me on back and say, what a good boy am I for being faithful to God. You could have held out and, and just, you know, worked at, you know, the laundry or something for a while and done some other things until the pasture spot came open. But you were so faithful. You went right into youth ministry and all that stuff. Well, that's a stupid expectation that we somehow or another expect applause when we do what God's called us to do. That we want somebody to, to pat us on the back or, or do something to make sure that they're noticing that we're really doing something important. I remember one time there was a, a, a woman who, who sang solos periodically and uh, got word that she was kind of a little dissatisfied and she 
was not really happy with the way it was going. I'm thinking, well, gracious, we got a lot of people who sing solos and you, we can't have you up there all the time. And, and what I found out was that she was upset because some of the other soloists, people clapped louder and longer and earlier for them than they did for her. Let me just step aside as the lightning is getting ready to strike here. I'm thinking like, no way. Uh, it's going to be a little change of attitude before you get back up there. That's so wrong. She was expecting commendation and applause for doing the very thing God called her to do. That's not what happens. Now, there can be gratitude expressed and there can be commendation. But if we expect it, demand it, and insist that we get it before we'll do anything else. Well, I did it one time before and they didn't thank me for it. I'm not doing it anymore. Well, aren't you and Jesus tight? I mean, no, that's not right at all. Paul, Silas, and his team did not have that expectation. I had to be careful in my own mind that my motivations were not to say what a servant I am to go and do that, which was not really what I thought I was supposed to do. And I hasten to say, I love student ministry. It was not a dismissing of that as something invalid. I just thought I knew better than the Lord, and I didn't, and I still don't. And here's some news for you. You don't either. We all need the Lord to show the way. So there might have been, secondly, an expectation that, well, if, Lord, you've shown me this, I will expect some privileged insights into other things that you want to show me. Because if you are this clear in showing me how to get to Philippi through Troas and turning me with, I'm going to expect that kind of privileged insight into other things. So when I get to this place, I'm going to know exactly how to reach those kids with the gospel. I'm going to watch as this explosion of revival happens among students, not just in that church, but across everywhere. I'll have insight about this. Well, man plans his ways, but God directs his steps, Proverbs 16, 9. But he doesn't owe me insight into what the destination is going to look like. Well, he gave instructions to Abraham. Yeah, what did he tell him? You go to the land, I'm going to show you. Well, where is it? Not necessary for you to know that. Put one foot in front of the next, and let's start going west. Yeah, but I kind of need to plan. I mean, you know, it's really like vacation. What do I pack? Is it cold where I'm going? Is it hot where I'm going? I need to know how, you know. No, you're leaving this place, and you're not ever coming back. No, no extra insight, no special privileged understanding. This church doesn't know where it's going to be in 10 years, 25 years. You don't know where you're going to be during that period of time. We don't know that we'll be here this afternoon. Jesus may come again today. I mean, so we don't know. So there's no privileged insight that we have. So well, how about Moses? Get to the promised land. I know how to get to the promised land, not the way I'm going to show you. It's going to involve a pillar of fire and a cloud. And you're not going to know how long it's going to stay in one place or where it's going to go next. And you're not going the direct route. You just need to follow me. So sometimes we don't have that special insight. It's just come over to Macedonia and help us. Third thing we can expect is that if we do this, that somehow or another, the Lord is going to put a bubble around us and nothing can harm us or hurt us and we're, we'll be protected from any kind of difficulties if we just do God's will, God's way. If I can just get where I need to be. And we have this, this saying that we, we say glibly as if this were some kind of absolute. And it says there's no safer place to be than where? In the center of God's will. Absolutely true. But does the safety mean that we're not subject to the darts of the enemy? 
Does that safety mean that sometimes or another we're not going to break our arms when we fall going down that road? Does it mean that somebody's not going to throw us in prison along the way? Does it mean what? What does it mean? It doesn't mean what we think it means. Jesus said it pretty simply in John 15, verse 20. He says, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If I deal with it, you're going to need to deal with it. 2 Timothy 2.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So the protection that we think maybe, God, you'll give us a nice little safe bubble where we can do just this wonderful thing and just enjoy it and never have to pray about it and never have to be concerned about it and never be afraid of anything. Uh, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work, right? I never promised you that. Years ago, I was in Indonesia teaching at a seminary there. And, and as a part of the week, we were having the, the seminary uh, graduation, the early part of the week. And then we were having a pastor's conference the latter part of the week. And, and as I'm looking at the, the seminary students getting their Master of Divinity degrees and other kinds of masters, they're, they're bowing down on the floor in the front of the stage, praying, and everybody's praising God for them. I, I realized something that I'd never thought of before because I didn't learned it after I got there. Those who are getting a master's of divinity in that seminary in Indonesia, which is the largest Muslim population in the world of any nation. You, you thought it was Arabic, didn't you? It's Indonesia. Well, to graduate with a master of divinity, you don't just do the coursework. I'm not sure if they're still holding to this now, but back in those days, you had to do the coursework and finish your graduate degree, your master's degree academically in the classroom, but you also had to plant a church during your years of seminary. Great, I'll give you 10 of my members and you give me 10 of yours and we'll just kind of swap members and we'll start a church. No, they had to be newly converted, baptized believers, 10 of them, to constitute really a new church plant. None of this swapping fishbowls from your fishbowl to this one. No, it had to be 10 new converts, baptized believers for your church requirement for your master of divinity to be satisfied. Folks, regularly, the number of MDiv students who were graduating was smaller than the class that entered. Not just because some of them didn't get the 10 baptized and meet that qualification. It's because some of them were martyred in the process. Taking the gospel to places where the gospel was not welcome resulted in many over the years being killed when they were doing exactly what God called them to do in the place that God sent them. So the rest of the world kind of can be excused if they're not too upset that we're upset that we can't have our big meetings the way we always have had them during COVID. They're, they're, they're maybe not seeing what we view persecution in the same way we view persecution. No, we expect protection, and that's not necessarily what God thinks it means. Uh, next, we, we may expect that this is just going to be incredibly fruitful. If we do it God's way, then he owes us Billy Graham crusade type of responses, right? The buses will wait. You come. If you want to be from the farthest balconies, you come. You know, and, and we're waiting for that to happen, and it doesn't. And then maybe it will for a season, and then it doesn't for many seasons. And we're thinking, well, God, if I'm doing the work, you have to produce the fruit. It's your job. 
I expect you to do. God is going to do what's right. You get to relax and be faithful. And God will take care of the fruitful. But we can't demand of God that, uh, listen, if I'm not seeing this happen, then I'm out of here. I'm going to be called somewhere else. Because that's tied in our minds to the next piece is that we somehow or another expect there to be a profit from what we're doing. Some kind of prosperity of what we're doing that shows up in the numbers that we can count the, the noses in the chairs and, and the nickels in the budget. We can count it tangibly and know that we're obviously doing a great work of God because you can count it from those two things. How many people are coming and how many dollars are giving? And that's the measure. And so when you see a church that's filling an entire arena with people, you know that's a work of God there. Uh, by that logic, where's the best place to eat in Greensboro? The city dump. A million flies can't be wrong, right? No, that's not the measure. People can be deceived. Paul tells Timothy, look, in the latter days, people are going to be deceived. They're going to be warning people who will tickle their ears, who will not preach sound doctrine, and people will flock after them. That's not prosperity and success from God's perspective. And we somehow or another have associated successful ministries with those that have the biggest numbers in the categories that are meaningful to us. Interesting, the pastors' conferences seldom feature pastors of small churches. Why? Because they're less faithful? Hardly. Well, that's a whole other topic. It's like some, be careful, I'm liable to start preaching here in a minute. Be careful. But that's, that's a part, of our, we have these weird expectations. We followed you, God. This is what we have a right to expect. And he says, you want to know what you have a right to expect? Let me explain to you from this passage what you could expect in reality. What you could actually experience when you follow my will. First thing that can happen is you could experience some frustration. Because when you go into a town like Derby or Leicester or somewhere like that, you go to the synagogue, you proclaim the word, then you move out of there and, and talk to the Gentiles. And you do the same in various cities. You come to Philippi, there's not even a synagogue. A synagogue, you only needed 10 Jewish men to start one. They didn't even have that. And so it says that they went, in verse 13, on the Sabbath day, outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. They didn't know it for certain, but they assumed there would be. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. There's not even a synagogue in this area. There's nothing that would look like this is going to be a profitable experience. This is nothing like what we expected in the other places we went. Lord, we're going to have to change our strategy and do something different. And yet, these guys did not even flinch. It says we began speaking the word to the women who were there. Not concerned about all the men who weren't. And Lydia, who's not even from Philippi, is a dealer in purple fabric. She's there, whether she's there on a business trip, I don't think so because she's already established a residence there. And she is the one who hears the gospel, responds to the gospel and believes. And yet from a, from a perspective of, of modern expectations, there was a frustration just waiting to happen. They got there and there was nothing that looked like church growth success. Nothing that looked like missionary faithfulness. It didn't look like that even remotely. And then after Lydia comes to Christ, they continue this pattern 
going down to the riverside. And as they're going to the riverside regularly now, there's this young demon-possessed slave girl who is, by her demon possession, foretelling things that are making lots of money for her owners. And she, through this demon in her, begins to confront Paul and his team regularly by, by saying, uh, these men are bondservants of the Most High God. They're proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And it says that Paul got greatly annoyed with her. Now, see, in our day, we'd probably put her on a billboard and let her be a part of our book endorsement deal. <laughs> these are proclaiming the way of the Lord. He's going like, no, no, no. She is getting in the way of what God's trying to do. And so God, by the power of the Spirit, worked through Paul, and the demon was cast out of her. Praise God. Not if you're her master, who's making money off of her fortune-telling business, and they are ticked as they could possibly be. And so this demonic interference that's going on all of a sudden ceases to God be the glory. But then this competitive thing begins to emerge where these guys are stopping us from doing our business. They're, they're keeping us from making the profit. They are cutting into our lifestyle. We got to stop them. And they opposed them. And they started recognizing that we need to compete with these guys. Now, for the slave girl, praise the Lord. She comes to meet Jesus, who saves her from that whole lifestyle, and she meets the, the Savior of the universe, who's come in the flesh to dwell among us and provide grace by which she can have her sin forgiven, that demon gone and her heart filled now with a Holy Spirit instead of a demonic spirit. What a glorious thing that is. And if you start doing God's work in God's way, what can you expect? You can expect to make the devil mad. If you're walking the same way he is, you're not going to run into him. If you're walking the narrow way opposite of him, you're going to have regular encounters with his opposition to you. Too many Christians don't run into the enemy interfering with our work because we are so meaningless and irrelevant to him because we're not doing anything that matters to him. But here was somebody who needed to be interfered with. This is Paul messing with territory that he had claimed for himself. And so there was this demonic interference. And then these, these business people saying, wait a minute, our hope of profit is gone. And so they start stirring things up. And by chapter 16, verses 20 and 22, they go to the chief magistrates, dragging the guys out there and saying, these guys are messing our life up. They're throwing our city into confusion, verse 20 being Jews, and they're proclaiming customs, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. So the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. But God, did you know this was going to happen when we came from Troas? But, but God... Shouldn't you have provided some protection for us? But, but God, how could you let such a thing happen? Father, how could, how could that pastor's wife have that disease? All she's done to sacrifice and serve you, and she, she struggles with that. Lord, how, how could that young mom who's trying to raise her little babies to love Jesus... Why, why is she dealing with such economic hardship right now? 
Lord, why, why is that businessman who is trying to live for you in his job being threatened with the loss of his job because he's upholding biblical principles and is putting him at odds with the owners and the bosses in the business? Or how, why, why is that happening? He said, you choose to follow me, there's going to be trouble. And there's going to be some opposition. And there's going to be the sense in which people are competing for your affections and for the results of what you're doing with your life. First Peter chapter 4, it says this, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's par for the course. This is what you can expect when you follow Jesus. Now, you don't put this in the first three sentences of your gospel presentation to someone. You know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And if you follow him, the wheels are going to come off and you're going to crash and burn in the desert. Would you like to make this commitment today? I mean, that's not how you start. But you don't soft pedal it either by telling them that your life will be turned upside down, everything will be perfect, and, and life will be a piece of cake and a bowl of cherries. If you just do that's not true. Trouble can come. Well, we mentioned earlier that, that they had a strategy that they were executing. We go to these cities, help get the churches established, appoint elders in those places, go west with the gospel. We're going to go to Asia. No, you're not going to go to Asia. We're going to go to Bithynia up there. No, we're not going to go there. We're going to go, okay, we, Troas, we'll go to Troas. Good, but that's not where we're going to end up. Going to Macedonia. Yes, immediate, we're going to do that. Fast forward. God, they tore our robes off of us and beat us to within an inch of our lives, and we're now in a jail cell in the bottom of a stinking Roman prison. This is your strategy? This is how you affirm us in doing what you've called us to do? Be patient and trust me. And so their response was not to even ask such a question as I just posed. That's a modern day question. That's how we view things. Lord, why am I being delayed in accomplishing your purpose? We've got to get on from Philippi, we've got other cities in Macedonia that need the gospel. We've got to work our way up and down the coast, the east coast of, of uh, Macedonia and, and down into Greece. We've got to get over it. We've got to get on with the business here, Lord. Why are we rotting away in a prison cell? They did not ask that. Here's what has to happen. We have to recognize that we have a choice to make. When we get to verse 25 of this chapter, we see that a choice was made that bore incredible fruit for the glory of God. They've been through the process. Lydia's in Christ. Praise God for that. Many people are hearing the gospel through the proclamations that are taking place as a result of Lydia's hospitality, giving them a home base for the work. They've been seeing God work in that way. Then Lydia provides a way so that this slave girl can come to Jesus. But, but God's asking a bigger question in a broader way than Paul or Silas or any of the rest of us would ever think about. You know what? I've got a guy that I know needs to know Jesus and he and his household need to be saved, but I don't have anybody else to go tell them. Who is it, Lord? Well, he's a jailer in Philippi. And I don't know any other way to get you there but to throw you in jail. Let's go to jail. And so they go to jail. They are beaten with rods. Their, their robes are torn off of them. They're thrown into jail. And now verse 25, you see them sitting around the prison cell, screaming at God, saying, what are you doing? 
grumbling, Lord, why have you done this? Not even remotely what they were doing. Verse 25, what does it say? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And the prisoners, prisoners were listening to them. And they're like, what? you got the same sentence we are. You're down here too. Why are you praising God? If your God was so great, why are you here and you're not up there? Paul and Silas, praising the name of Jesus, worshiping the Lord God, and exalting him for the privilege of being his servants. And then the earthquake came. And all the chains fall off. And the prison doors fly open. And they are free to go or free to stay. The jailer, who God has his arrow pointed at, comes rushing in. He's ready to kill himself because he figures everybody's fleeing in the, in the earthquake. He would be held responsible for what happened, and it would be ugly, so he was just going to take his own life there and be done with it. He comes in, and Paul, Paul and the guys are going like, whoa, 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 we're all here. We were free to go, but we were free to stay as well. We choose to stay. For the glory of God. We got three more verses of just as I am. We got to sing. We're, we're singing hymns of praise. We got, some, we got some stuff still to do. And then the, the jailer, when he watches what's going on, he asks that question in verse 30 that we, we hear. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, was he talking about his life being saved from execution by his bosses? Maybe. But if he's hearing what was going on in that cell... And he's watching the response of the other prisoners. What must I do to be saved? They gave a specific answer in verse 31. You believe in the Lord Jesus. And you'll be saved. You and your household. And so what happens when God calls us into a mess? Well, Paul saw it as the privilege of his calling. When he writes to Timothy, the first letter he wrote to him, he says, I thank Christ Jesus. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful and put me into service. And I don't mind whatever it costs if I get to be a servant of Jesus. God give us churches filled with people like that. God, give us pastors like that. Give us deacons like that. Give us church members who were teachers and, and singers and, and workers in the parking lots. And, and usher. Give us people who love this. Lord, I consider it an honor to just be on your team. The privilege of that calling. I choose to praise you for that. Lord, I thank you that you saw me as a solution to something that you needed to fix. You needed to figure out how to get the gospel to this woman, Lydia, who's a businesswoman, out of her element, in a strange place, who needed to know about Jesus. You got us to the seashore, or to the riverside, so that we could share with her. And this, this slave girl, who would have told her? She's a nobody, a speck on the social spectrum that nobody even notices except those who were gaining profit from her. Nobody cares about her except you, Lord, and you sent us for her. And this jailer, not only him, but his household need to come to Christ. And so after he believes, he took them that very hour, verse 33, 
That very hour of the night, he washed their wounds. What wounds? The ones when they were beaten for Christ. He washes their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. Yeah, God's precision. We praise him and rejoice in that. And, and the privilege of his calling, Lord God, praise you for that. Because we don't always see what God's doing. We just have to trust him and put one foot in front of the other and walk in the way he's given us. Why? Isaiah 55 says it. He says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. My thoughts than your thoughts. You're going to have to trust me sometimes. You can trust me all the time. My ways are always right. We should rejoice in the privilege of that calling Rejoice in the way he precisely orchestrates his will so that we could accomplish that purpose. Can you imagine that if there's a group of folks in Raleigh when I'm doing youth ministry uh, who are thinking, you know what, we want to plant a church in Raleigh, North Carolina. I know. Let's go look at a seminary up in Massachusetts and see if we can find somebody. Uh Uh-uh. Ain't going to happen. So where were Kathy and I when they were looking to have someone come plant a church? The precision of God had us move to Raleigh, be in that city, develop relationships with those people, and be exactly where we needed to be so that when they were ready to start a church in 1978, they asked us. And the Lord said, see, I had to get you where I needed you to be. And once I got you there, then I could open the doors for what I was going to do elsewhere. Trust me. Just trust me. To the praise of his name, we say, yes, Lord. I never expected this when I said, yes, I'll come to Raleigh and do youth ministry. I never had for a moment. People said, did the church work out like you thought it would after y'all planted it? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, like I was smart enough to have thought about that. No. It was so far different from anything I would have ever imagined. Far greater because God got to do what God wanted to do. And he knew nobody would claim the credit because everybody knew we were a bunch of crazy people. He gets the honor. He gets the glory when we just do what he's called us to do. And so through all the mess that comes when we follow God, there is this lesson that he's teaching us. You can trust me and you can walk with me and it will be for the glory of my name and the good of your soul. Now, I've already told you I'm, I'm old. But I'm old enough to remember Andre Crouch. Some of you remember Andre Crouch? 1971, yes, ladies and gentlemen, 50 years ago, he put out a song called Through It All. Anybody remember Through It All? Yeah, the last verse. So I thank God for the mountains. I'm not going to sing it. You'll be all right with that. I thank God for the mountains. Okay. And I thank him for the valleys. Hmm. Why would you do that? Thank you for the mountains. We get that. Why would you thank him for the valleys? They were thanking God for the mountains and the valleys when they were in jail in Philippi. So I thank him for the mountains. I thank him for the valleys. I thank him for the storms he's brought me through. Because if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know that he could solve them. I wouldn't know what faith in his word could do. Through it all. Through it all. I've learned to trust in Jesus. I've learned to depend upon his word. That's what we're called to do, folks. And as we move into Philippians next week, 
we want to come with this understanding. The church that he's writing to experienced the blessings of a man and his team who were willing to follow the Lord regardless of what it cost them and recognize the hand of God working among them. And to the praise and the glory of the name of Jesus, great things happen. Folks, through it all, we may not have expected what God did, but if we trust him, we will be amazed and our hearts filled with joyous praise. Let's pray together. Father, don't let us waste our sorrows in our experiences of hardship, but may we learn and grow from them. May we recognize even before we would be tempted to grumble and complain about what we're going through, to be able to see through the trouble to the orchestrating power of your hand to situate all the details so that your purposes and your praise would be the result. Lord, we're not responsible for the results. You are. We're called to be faithful, not fruitful. You are the fruit bearer. May we trust in you. And so, Lord, for everyone here, our heart desires to cry out to you. Lord, show me the way and I will walk in it. Even when I don't know the end from the beginning, I will trust you. Father, may we be a trusting people who are ready to see your hand work among us in extraordinary ways for the praise of your name. We will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship him together.